Hey there, I'm Vicki Howell. Welcome to the Craftish Podcast, episode number 27. This week's episode is sponsored by our friends at Makers Mercantile. Makers Mercantile is a space for fueling your creativity. They have both a brick and mortar shop in Kent, Washington, and an online space that ships worldwide. And they're really all about inspiring you to make using any medium that you feel passionate about. Their online shop carries supplies for sewing, weaving, knitting, crochet, dyeing, and more. Plus, they have tons of great gifts and books and storage. I, I just think you're really going to dig them. And right now, they are, they are offering Craftish listeners free shipping for U.S. orders. So make sure you check out makersmercantile.com. This week, I talked to Brooklyn-based journalist and novelist Nora Zelovansky. Her latest book, Will You, Won't You Want Me, is out on shelves now. During our conversation, Nora gave me a peek into her life as a full-time writer and mom. She shared a bit of her creative process, some of the experiences that helped shape both of her novels, and the educational life and spiritual journeys that have brought her to where she is today. Let's meet her now. Nora Zelvansky, thank you so much for coming on to Craftish. Thank you so much for having me. I want to start with a quote from a website called Live the Process, and it's and it's a little bit of advice that you offer, I assume, to, to other writers, but it, it really sort of applies to anybody in any aspect of life really quickly. You said, acknowledge your particular strengths and weaknesses, and then stop trying to fight or mold them. No one can do everything. It's okay to focus on what works for you and accepting that it can lighten your load. As someone, you know, in reading your bio, and who, and it seems to be, although a, a clearer path than my rather eclectic, um, you know, everything from film distribution to journalism to um, being a novelist, mm-hmm. a, and being in, in all of those industries being very sort of insecure within itself, within themselves. Mm-hmm. At what point were you able to pull from the experiences within those really sort of, there can be a lot of um, uh, a lot of pressure in all of those industries to, f- to fill all of the bills. At what point along your journey or what, what parts of that journey um, brought you to wh- what's really some very sound advice? Oh, um, I mean, I, I think I'm probably still trying to learn to actually live by that advice. <laughs> Um, well, for one thing, I grew up in an, what I learned was an unusual environment. Um, I didn't realize how unusual it was until I left. Um, but I grew up in a very artistic household. Um, my father was, when I was younger, like a kid was a performance artist. Um, and like like what kind of performing? Um, pretty esoteric performing. He was part of this movement that was sort of um, prominent in the 80s called the Artist Book Movement, um, which was sort of a mixture of text and images to create, to tell stories um, with sort of a philosophical bent. Um, and basically the books themselves are the artwork. Um, and so his performance art was generally... Um, it generally involved readings from those books, um, but with props and occasionally monkeys. Of course, obviously. <laughs> obviously so is this, monkeys. So is this like a, a street performing thing or is it something like a spoken word, you know, open mic night type of thing or all of the above? Um, it would be like at Soho galleries. Like he would have a gallery that represented him and he would do these performances. And it was like when Soho was... Um, still, you know, very rough around the edges and it was really about artists. And, um, so all of their, my parents sort of weird friends. I mean, they certainly seemed that way to my sister and and me at that age, (laughs) um, would gather for, and he, and sit on the floor and drink bad, you know, wine and, and watch him do these performances. Um, and at the same time, um, my, my mother, uh, was a photographer and an art critic. And then she ultimately became a a contemporary art curator at the museum of modern art. Oh, wow. Yeah. And, um, and my sister, um, my older sister was one of those people who was just like born into theater, um, and was reading like, you know, Kafka when she was like 12. Um, (laughs) (laughs) so that's all to say that this was the household I grew up in. Um, 
so there was definitely always a sense that um, that that the process was the experience that you're trying to achieve, but not in a traditional sense that that what matters is the work and and that matters most of all. Um, and so I think as I I was sort of I had more traditional aspirations, actually, by comparison. Um, and so when I went out into the world, I think what I realized is that you know, especially having tried a few things that really didn't work for me um, before I landed in a place that that felt like home, <laughs> um, that there's value in those those experiences that are wrong for you because you learn about yourself, but also you learn skills that can car- be carried into all of these other things that you do. And, um, and ultimately the only thing you can do is try to, you know, do the best you can at, at the work that you feel like is your work. Um, and even though I'm absolutely guilty of it, the worst thing that you can do is sort of draw comparisons, um, between yourself and others, especially other um, people who are, who are creating. And especially when you've got a critic in your, in your family. I would yes. <laughs> Which by nature means you do compare yes. and contrast. That's true. That's true. Absolutely. Well, my parents definitely, I definitely did not grow up in a household where they were like, where they believed that um, all art has value just because you've created it. Like that was not, that was not the ethos of my household. Um, there was art, like they treated art, like it was like medicine or something. It's something you studied. It's something you understood things. It, it has intellectual rigor. It's not just about how it makes you emote. It's about, um, it's, it's about the analysis behind it. Um, so yeah, definitely a different take on art than like my friends who, whose parents were just like putting their art up on the, my parents had a special drawer where they like hid my artwork a lot of the time. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So, so you go out, you, well, did you feel any pressure to given, you know, the household that you grew up to, to sort of follow a creative path towards your career or was it just something that just felt, you know, you said your sister was born into theater. Did did you feel like you were born into being a writer? Um, well, you know, actually I was really, um, interested in visual art when I was growing up. Um, and my parents really, um, emphasized, I mean, they, they supported the actual, you know, doing of it, but they really kind of begged me not to become an artist. Um, I guess they felt like it was like a difficult lifestyle. Um, I always wrote, um, writing in my household was also kind of a rigorous thing. Um, so when, um, I had essays due for school, my mother would sit down with me and she would go line by line through the essay and she would say, that sentence is awkward. Um, Mm -hmm. how can you reconfigure it? Um, what's a better word for this? And she'd make me like look up words in the dictionary. And so it was sort of this like rigorous process, which mirrored what she had to do with her editors. And I think it really taught me to write. Um, and at some point when I was about 15 or 16, she said, maybe you'll be a writer when you grow up. And, and I said, no way, that's too hard. There's no way. And I, I, I was always, I was like the editor of my high school literary magazine and in college to make money, I was a writing tutor. And I was sort of that friend who like edited my friend's papers and all that stuff. And I had this idea that I wanted to work with writers. Um, but I, for some reason, it really didn't occur to me to be one. I'm not, I'm not even totally sure why. Um, was it daunting to you at that point? Was the blank page kind of a, a daunting process versus if you, if you wanted to work with writers, you had a love for words, but if you had something to start from, did it seem a little less intimidating? I mean, I always feel that way to this day. Um, I'm so glad to hear that. <laughs> yeah. Because I, <laughs> um, I think a lot I mean, of people do. Yeah. I mean, I don't think there's anything more terrifying than a blank page. Um, especially it's like if you haven't been writing every day and suddenly you're faced with it again, even if I've like gone on vacation for two weeks and come back and look at a blank page, I'm like, uh, um, but I do think that's, that's the case. I also think I had this picture of myself as like the mainstream member of my family. And I, I kept saying I wanted to be a creative executive, not that I had any idea what that meant, by the way. 
Um, and so I think I had this idea that, no, I wasn't going to be an artist. I was going to be an executive and I was going to make money. And, um, yeah, that wasn't going to happen. Was there, <laughs> I mean, was there a struggle in your household financially that sort of put your focus there or were you getting that from somebody in school or? Um, yeah, no, there wasn't a struggle in my household. Fortunately, we were fortunate enough not to have that as an issue. Um, but I guess I just, I guess my parents had always said like, you don't make money that way. Right. Um, and so maybe I just sort of knew that, um, or I had some kind of picture of myself that had very little to do with who I actually was. Um, you know, like it, <laughs> this is sort of a, a digression, but it's like my sister always makes fun of me every time I buy a hat because she's like, you're not a hat person. You're never going to wear that hat, but it's like the person I want to be. Um, you know, would wear that amazing felt hat. Um, I feel like you need to take your own advice. <laughs> I know, I know. Don't I mold do. that mold, friend. <laughs> I know, it's totally true. Um, so I think I just had this like, picture of, of what um, my life would be. And also, you know, actually, sort of full disclosure, I, I had had this um, internship when I was in college at Propaganda Films, which was a film production company yeah. that no longer exists. Yeah. And at the time they made music videos and commercials mostly. And they just happened to have this stable of like amazing directors who all became really famous directors at that time. They just were like young and doing music videos. And it just seemed like the coolest place in the world. So I had this like idea that I was going to do that instead. Um, but then the reality of a nine to five job, it turned out did not, did not suit. You know, it's interesting though, because so let's talk about the different ways that you write. Well, first off, before I go on that, when do you have a, a memory of when you first started voluntarily writing on your own, something that wasn't an assignment, whether it be um, bad poetry or, you know, short stories or whatever? Yeah, definitely really, like, pretty young. Like, I would say when I was, like, seven or eight, um, I started writing stories. Um, some of them were fiction, but from the very beginning... Um, sort of, and it, what continued to be my first love were, um, personal essays. Mm -hmm. Um, so there was a story I remember I wrote just for myself when I was like in third or fourth grade, that was about like some suicidal poet or something like that, something in the vein of the bad poetry. Um, but I, I also remember, um, as like a 14 year old, I had like my first experience where I like drank way too much. You know, I drank like a bottle of peach schnapps thinking it was the strength of a right. wine cooler oh, and it like Lord. did not go well. Yes. Bad, bad ending. And, um, I remember writing a story about it and I didn't, it, I didn't, um, own up to it being me, but, but, um, that was sort of the beginning of writing personal essay. And I do always think it's interesting that I come from a school of personal essay because, I do write nonfiction and fiction, and that is the marriage of, of the two um, in many ways, that creative nonfiction. Right. So you mentioned, you know, having it in your mind that you wanted to be a creative executive. And I wonder if you could sort of compare or contrast that mindset with the difference between two of the genres you write in, uh, one being journalism, which is, by definition, more structured, Mm -hmm. Um, and the other being fiction, which is not as clearly defined, but can be less structured. And I don't mean as in the stories told, but I mean in the boundaries of your creativity. Yeah. Um, and that's kind of interesting. Um, yeah. So I had, I think I was drawn to the, the idea of a creative executive cause I knew I wanted to do creative work. Um, but executive sounded like stable, I guess. Um, and then the more that I worked and I worked in the film industry and then first, and then I worked in politics for a short stint. Um, which what, was, were, what were you doing in politics? I was working for a company that ran, um, democratic campaigns and also, um, nonprofit campaigns in California. Um, and it was miserable. Like I really hated it. Um, let's <laughs> just say that. And, um, that's actually what sort of brought me back to writing. Um, I sort of at my most miserable and, and least filled up emotionally. Um, 
I, I started writing an essay about an ex-boyfriend or something, and I thought, well, maybe I'll take a class at UCLA, um, a creative writing, nonfiction class. And, and it, that was sort of what, that was the gateway into the journalism, which came first. Um, and you're absolutely right. The journalism ultimately requires a lot of structure. Um, and I had never really thought of myself as a structured person, but that was one of the reasons why I realized that that journalism was the right career for me or writing in general, because for whatever reason, even though I was not very structured in other areas of my life, as soon as I, when it came to writing, I was very structured and I had no trouble with being structured, um, with it. Um, and so I, I sort of recognized that as a sign that it was, um, something in the right direction. Right. And, um, and, and so, uh, but you're totally correct. What happens when you start to write in journalism, especially as a freelancer, is that you have to kind of shift your voice um, periodically, depending on what the publication is. Um, and there's a lot of structure, and there's a lot. There are a lot of boundaries in terms of what you're allowed to do, or what the publication wants or needs from you. Um, you know, obviously, including things like word counts, which can, for me, actually, I'm an overwriter. Um, can be really difficult to stick to um, and and all of those sorts of things. And actually that is what led me to fiction um, because I was feeling, I just was at this point where I was feeling really frustrated by all the boundaries and the fact that I was sort of having to adjust my, my natural voice in all these different ways. And so I decided, even though, as I said, I, I almost never wrote fiction before, um, to just to give NaNoWriMo a shot. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. Explain, really quickly explain to the, uh, to listeners um, what that is. What it is, yes. Yeah, so so NaNoWriMo, I really actually can't say enough positive things about it. Um, NaNoWriMo is short for National Novel Writing Month, um, and it, it happens every November, and essentially the idea is that you do very little outlining, very little research, but any research you do, you do in advance of the month of November in like the couple weeks before. And then every day of the month of November, you're meant to write a little bit under, I believe, 1,700 words a day. Um, and you're not allowed to edit and you're not allowed to go backwards. Um, and I think for me and for a lot of people, what's so brilliant about this concept um, aside from the fact that you can kind of sign up online and then you have a graph that's sort of gratifying that graphs your, you know, that charts your, your word count and all that stuff is that instead of coming up with an idea, um, and then sort of deciding that it, you know, going for a little while and then sort of deciding that it sucks and giving up on it, um, you're not allowed to, that's literally, those are the rules. Um, you have to keep going. And the reality is, in the process of, of writing anything, you come to a point where you think it's terrible. Mm -hmm. I mean, at least I do. Actually, I shouldn't say other people do. I always have at least one point at which I've de I decide I've written something horrendous. Um, and this forces you to write through that. Um, and so that's what I did. And I, I started with a concept. This is for my first book, um, which Semi-Charmed Life, um, which was originally called the Pfeffer News Chronicles, really. <laughs> it doesn't roll off the tongue quite as easily. It does not. Um, I was like, you want to change the title? Yeah. Uh, but um, it, it started off with, it was based actually on just a dream I had while I was on vacation with my husband, um, this really vivid dream of um, a party where, um, where, um, Jerry Garcia of the Grateful Dead was spinning records. He was already deceased at that point. And, um, and it was just like this sort of amazing, brightly colored, like saturated party that um, defied the rules of time and space. And that was, and I had written a paragraph, just like I just written the dream down. And that was my starting point. I really didn't know where it was going to go. And what was so attractive to me about that was that there were no boundaries that yeah. I could just write anything. And I just thought whether this becomes something or not, it's just a chance to like, you know, be free um, in your creativity and just sort of see where you're and, and and surprise yourself in terms of where your brain will take you. Yeah, there's actually, so the, the, the very first person I interviewed for um, the Crafters podcast, 
was is also a novelist. Her name is Rachel Heron, and she's actually on the board of NaNoWriMo. Mm-hmm. And she talked, she spoke a bit about how sort of freeing it was to be able, you almost, this particular month almost gives you permission to write badly. Because yeah. at least you're getting something on paper. And once you've given yourself the license for it to be bad, it the, the sort of floodgates open because it's almost like you feel like the shackles are off of you. You're just going to sort of like vomit all these words. But then you're, it's surprising after you read how you see within the depths of despair, you see some light and you pull yeah. that. And that for her is a really was a, is a really exciting process as she actually really enjoys the rewriting process still yeah. to this day. Um, I and I thought that was so interesting. That, yeah. Although for you, you said that you're an overwriter, so um, it doesn't sound like you have the same the same challenge that a lot of us, m- myself included, have of being able to sort of squeeze out that word count. So maybe this month wasn't as torturous for you. Um, yeah, I mean, I I think well, it speaks directly to what you were saying about the blank page. I mean, I completely agree with her. Like. If I have something I can edit, I'm thrilled um, versus having to start from scratch. Um, And I totally also agree about the notion of not having to feel as precious about something because you're not taking 10 minutes to pick each word. You're just kind of like almost free associating, you know? Mm. Um, Yeah, I didn't find that process torturous. I know, you know, I don't know if you find this. I I hear from a lot of writers... um, successful writers, um, who talk about hating writing. (laughs) Yeah. Um, and it's almost like, it's like this artistic imperative, like they have to do it, but they actually like really don't enjoy it. Um, I feel fortunate to not feel that way. Um, not to say that there weren't days when I was writing or at any point where I feel like, especially when it isn't coming out well and it's coming out slow and all of that stuff where I'm not, frustrated and don't feel like doing it, um, to certainly have those days. But, um, I think in contrast to the journalism being so strict, it was just at that point, just so freeing and such a relief that, yeah, that I just, yeah, that I didn't have trouble writing, um, enough. Um, if you ever do come, come up against, I know some people hate the term writer's block, but if you ever feel like the flow isn't there, like that blank page seems too blank, if there's something keeping you, we're recording this on the day of the um, presidential elections here in the mm-hmm. U.S. Um, and a little, and before we started, we were talking about how we were both having a, a little bit of a hard time focusing. When you find <laughs> when you find yourself in that position, do you have and, and if you also have a deadline, um, do you have any rituals uh, that help sort of kind of like push the flow a little bit? Yeah, I think every time I have to start something that, um, especially if it's for a publication that I haven't written for before, um, it doesn't matter even whether it's like a very, you know, respected publication or, or a barely known publication. I just get nervous when I'm, when it's for a new editor who doesn't like love me yet, you know? (laughs) Um, I, so, um, what I tend to do is I will try to, I won't, I'll give myself a few days. Like I will sort of map it out in my head. Um, I'll think about the story for a few days. I'll start to try to think about what, how I want to open it. Because I think if you have your opening sentence or two, that really, really helps. Um, and then I will open a document and I will name the document and I'll take some notes, um, about what needs to be in it. And I'll make sure that I have sort of all the information in one place. So I feel like I'm ready to start. And then I still don't start. I still sleep on it for another night. Mm -hmm. Um, so that I'd sort of given myself a chance to, for it to percolate in my brain. Um, and then, so that way, by the time I sit down, I don't feel, even though I am starting from scratch, I don't feel like I'm just like coming cold to the blank page. I feel like there's like, I've sort of set the stage for it. Um, right. But do you have any additional, like, uh, for instance, Rachel makes a special music playlist for each project that she has. And another, uh, guest that I interviewed, who's actually, um, an artist, um, also in Brooklyn. I don't know if you know Ed from Stencil One, but he, um, he says he takes a little siesta when he feels himself shutting down. It's like a power 20 minutes and then it frees up things. Are there any sort of, um, kind of less structured, 
things that give you that you a little kicker? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I wish, I so wish I was the person who had, I always wish I could write to a music playlist. I so can't, I can't write to music, sadly. Um, and I'm not a napper. Um, I am somebody who like stands in front of the refrigerator while, while, when I can't think of what to do for some reason. Um, and I think that actually, and I know this sounds sort of silly, but if I can just sort of go outside for a minute Mm -hmm. and go get something like delicious, either like a yummy drink or like a, like a juice or something, or, um, some kind of like dessert or like something like that, and then come back and sit down, that sometimes helps me. Um, yeah, it sort of kind of resets you getting yourself out of the the space where you're supposed to write. And what about working? So I'm assuming you, you work from home most of the time. You know, what's so funny is I have, I've worked from home forever. Um, and then a couple of years ago I had a, a daughter and, um, and then it became more difficult to work from home because if she was here with a babysitter while I was trying to work, like it was, um, I sort of recognized that that would be difficult for her. Um, confusing and made, make the, made the babysitter's life harder. Um, and so I started working in cafes. Hmm. Previously, I had this belief that only men felt like they had to leave the house to work. And like, because all the freelance men I knew were like, you have to shower first thing and get out of the house. Otherwise you feel like a loser. And I was like, I don't feel like a loser. Right. And I've been in my pajamas for three days, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But, um, so I started going to cafes to work, um, which was totally fine. Um, and now my daughter is in preschool. And so now I'm able to work from home again. And I've lost the ability to work from home, I think. Yeah. Um, so I've actually started working um, in cafes still um, just because uh, just to sort of escape the potential distractions. What, if anything, about motherhood has changed your approach to writing? Um, actually, I, I sort of, you know, before I had kids, I mentioned to my father and my, my husband, who's also, um, he's a filmmaker, and a screenwriter. Um, we waited a bit, a while. Um, we'd been together a long time before we had kids. Um, and one of the reasons why is we, I think we were both afraid that once we had her, we wouldn't have time to do, or, or like the band, the mental bandwidth to do the work. Um, and my, I remember my father saying to me, you can't believe how much you can get done in a, such a small amount of time once you have to. And don't um, you find don't you find that and I may be projecting here, but don't you find like a certain a certain sense of annoyance with people who don't have kids now who complain about having too much to work, too much I work do. to do? And you're like, come on! Like I've already done four loads of laundry, written three stories, and you know I saw fifteen I, minutes to spare. Yeah, what I do wonder is what it's almost like. I have annoyance with my former self. Like right. I'm like. Right. How do how did why did you think you were so busy? Why were you so tired all the time? What were you tired about? Yeah. Like you had, you know, breaks and you could like sleep until 10 and what was your problem? But I don't know. I mean, I guess I was accepting more late night social obligations. I don't know what, but um but well, and also if you're getting up with a toddler, you probably had four more hours to work than you would have if you were sleeping until 10. That's true. Know. That's totally true. Um, and a sense, a sense of urgency that always sort of helps. Um, but the other thing is, is that, you know, it's easy for, as you know, um, it's easy for creative people to have, uh, to sort of develop neuroses around their work. Um, and these ideas that like, unless they have like the exact right pen and the exact right seat and the exact right, you know, everything environment that they can't do the work at the same level. Um, and so I was one of those people who felt like if I didn't start writing the minute I got up, basically like brush my teeth, sit down, start writing that I was just, that was it for the day. I couldn't do it. Like I couldn't write, I could do other kinds of work, but I couldn't write. Um, and because once I had a daughter, I, I, because I didn't have that luxury of starting first thing when I woke up, um, I just don't, I don't have that. That's not necessary anymore. And I'm super grateful for that actually, because it just made it it much more, it made it much easier to get my work done in different 
environments uh, and situations. I don't know if you find that yeah, too. Yeah, I think I almost, well, I had my babies young, not young, young, but like, you know, my first one I had when I was 26. And oh, so yeah. I had less of a, and I had a little bit of a, a change because I, I used to work in the entertainment industry. And then when I um, got pregnant, pregnant with my eldest and he's now almost 17, um, which wow. is crazy that just came yeah. out of my mouth. Um, I was actually laid off a production company in LA um, when I was newly pregnant. And since you also worked in the entertainment industry, you can probably have my back here and knowing that um, if you aren't willing to give birth on your lunch break <laughs> and right. come back, you know, they're not all that interested in hiring you. I had people, I had, you know, I was literally patted on the shoulder and wished and wished well as they pushed me out the door when I was uh. interviewing at different places because of so I think because of that I didn't have the same there wasn't that same transition I I kind of did a little a little bit of um, stay at home mom thing and then I completely reconfigured my career but I do think that it almost felt like a little like a video gamer's one up on life as far as like it was almost like you unlocked. Um, it's not like a power, but just the ability to multitask more yeah. or or the drive. It was like once you have a child, you, it's almost like it pushes you to realize that you have to open more of yourself to be able to survive. And with yeah. that, with that comes a certain level of empowerment. Mm-hmm. When if you can hold a baby on your hip while also doing some form of work, whatever your definition of work is, it it feels a little bit. I'll use the word again, like a superpower. Yeah, like it, it's yeah. a little bit freeing, and so, but it's also extraordinarily challenging. Um, but yeah. there are a lot of positives in it. Yeah, no, I actually, it's so, so funny that you use that expression because um, I was just saying last week to a friend that I just basically, to me, motherhood is I have days when I feel like the world's biggest failure. I can't do anything right. And then days when I feel like I'm a superhuman person and I cannot believe that I'm able to achieve what I'm able to achieve in a day. And I kind of have nothing in between. (laughs) I think that, um, that pretty much every mom has, (laughs) feels the same or has at one point in time. Just like, I think that every creative person you, you gave sort of a, a disclaimer um, earlier about, well, maybe it's only you that hits this point where you feel like what you're writing is awful. And that's also a common theme in this podcast. And that doesn't matter if I'm interviewing radio DJs or professional knitters. Like they're always, I think it's part of the creative process to think, what have I done? (laughs) You know, I'm not qualified. I'm not good enough. I'm not. And I think the more that people talk about that, the more freeing it will be in sort of like the creative collective for people to take more risks and accept that they are creative, that that is part of the process. And also that it means something because that means the work also means something to them. Yeah. I mean, I think it's important. It's definitely really important to remember that, that nobody is creating what they're creating without bumps in the road. Um, that it's always challenging. And if it wasn't, then, everybody would be, would do it, you know, um, that, that in some ways I can't imagine anything, at least, I mean, for me personally as rewarding, um, as even sometimes like writing a few sentences that just to me, like, just, I feel like have fully realized what I wanted to communicate. Um, but, but, you know, for all the times you have that, there are the times when it's not clicking, you know, Um, and so that's a huge part of it. And actually, um, so I have a, a new manuscript right now and I, um, and with it, I've been confronting a different challenge than I have ever confronted before, which is that, um, I felt so good about the first draft. I liked it so much. I felt like it was the best thing I have ever written. Um, and then, but I recognized also that there were some problems with it that structurally that I needed to make some changes. And I became like afraid of touching it mm. for fear of, of making it worse. Um, Do you have a strong and, editor to help walk you through that? Um, I mean, I, I love my editor at the publisher that published my first two books, but in this case, um, this book isn't sold yet. Mm. Um, so I don't really have, um, I suppose I could bring someone on or ask, um, I have had friends give me sort of reads on it. Um, but ultimately I think it's like, 
at some point you can't be so tightly wound about something. You have to just let it go and let it fall apart a little um, so that it can come back together as something better. You know, and it's just it's just a difficult thing sometimes to sort of let go of the reins in that way. Yeah, I'd forgotten. So it's very different. How you submit work um, in the fiction world is very different than um, people who work in the DIY realm, mm-hmm. as I do. I can pitch an overall book with an example project, an example chapter. What a, you know, what my overall vision is, some bullet points. You know, grab some swipes and turn it in, and then we mold the book together. But for fiction and possibly nonfiction, I'm not sure. Maybe you can answer that. You actually yeah. have to write it first before you can get before you can submit it, and then and frankly get any sort of advance or any money. So you have to do it all on your own dime and your own time. Yeah, that's that's right. Um, I mean, obviously, unless you're like an incredibly successful best-selling author, in which case, I'm sure that they're like, go for it, you right, know. Right. Um, but. Uh, yeah, unless you, um, already have like a pre existing deal. Like I, my second book was a part of a two book deal. So in that case, I I didn't have to write it beforehand. Um, but yeah, generally you have to write the entire thing and then submit it and hope that, um, somebody either feels is enthusiastic about what you've submitted or at least feels enthusiastic enough to feel like, okay, if you, if you're willing to kind of work with us a little bit on this, um, we're into it. Um, will you blind submit or you probably have an agent at this point? Yeah. Yeah. You, um, generally, I mean, I know that there are stories about people selling their books without agents. And of course people are doing amazing jobs, um, self-publishing these days, but, um, but yeah, in general, um, the publishing industry is pretty strict, um, in terms of the various sort of doctrines and, um, generally it would be, it would be very difficult to sell a book without an agent. Let's talk about the book that just came out for you. Um, will you, won't you want me? And this is, um, this is a story about a very sort of very late coming of age journey, um, by a woman who's in her late twenties, Marjorie Plum, who, sort of lived the kind of ideal high school experience where she was sort of at the top of popularity and, um, you know, everything sort of came easy to her. And here she is at 28, and she's sort of, in a way, it kind of reminded me of um, sort of Uncle Rico and Napoleon Dynamite, which is so, uh-huh. so random, but you know, how he's always talking about, you know, that, you know, that football, that great mm-hmm. football game. Although she doesn't talk about her time as a high schooler, she feels very much boxed in by the glory of that mm-hmm. and is still adjusting to just being, frankly, an adult. Um, and, you know, through this book, she does sort of work through it. And I'm wondering if there's any parallels between your own sort of, you know, juvenile life through adulthood and you know, in that, with that adjustment period. Yeah, um, definitely. Um, I mean, and Marjorie is definitely not me, um, for various reasons, which I feel fortunate about because, um, she does really struggle. Um, but I was a very, very social high school kid. Um, and when, when it time came to go to college, I was not that psyched to leave high school, um, which I know is, is not a popular way to feel. Um, and, I felt sort of pushed out, um, partially because my parents, unlike other parents who had the rule that sort of your kids, they, they insisted their kids stay within a certain, you know, mile radius. My parents had, their only rule was that I had to leave New York. So, and I grew up in New York city, I should, I should say. Mm -hmm. Um, so, um, all of, almost all of my friends stayed in, you know, sort of the tri-state area or, or close to it. And they went to college in pairs largely. Um, and so with their best friends, um, and I ended up going to college in California, um, by myself to a place where I didn't know anybody. Um, and at the same time, my parents moved also to California, um, which was sort of a coincidence, um, that we were going to the same place, but, um, and so, I was uprooted in this certain kind of way. I I didn't really have a home to go back to. Mm -hmm. Um, And 
I, I hadn't really made peace with, with New York, um, and leaving. And, um, so I, and then I went away and I had all these experiences and then I had a boyfriend who wanted to stay in LA and we stayed in LA and then I was working in film. And so I stayed in LA and, um, I started to notice, uh, you know, it's like, there's a, there's a point at which it feels like all of your peers are doing the same thing. Everybody's applying to college, going to college. And then you sort of think like, how do people's lives veer off in different directions? And then that's when it starts to happen. People start to drop out or they transfer or they, you know, have get married earlier. They have kids and all of that stuff. And I started to notice that a lot of my friends who were definitely like very social sort of popular kids, um, were really struggling with, coming of age and becoming adults. Um, they seem, and they seemed pretty stuck. And so, um, at some point my father said to me, well, what would have happened to you if you never left? Like if you stayed? Um, and so that got me thinking, um, and not that Marjorie, um, is me if I had stayed, but, but about how far you need to, do you need to leave a place to evolve? How do you, evolve if you don't leave a place. Um, and I guess what stayed with me was I had these sort of unresolved feelings about New York. Like I, I wanted, like, cause I had never gone back and lived there as an adult. Um, and it felt like this sort of monkey on my back. Mm. Um, and so that, and I had this idea, even in my happiest moments while I was living in LA that like there were happier moments in New York. Um, and it really took moving back to New York and realizing that the place I grew up, which was the Upper West Side, is a totally different place. It doesn't exist anymore um, in that same capacity. What's and different that, about it now? Just out of curiosity, I have a good friend that lives on the Upper West Side. Oh, yeah. So the Upper West Side, which to me is always a special place. I mean, I grew up there, so I'm, I'm biased, but it, it is a special place. It's with the artsier side, right? Or is it no longer that way? Well, it is compared to the Upper East Side. Um which was always a little bit, um, it's where all the bankers lived stodgier. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but now, um, so when I was growing up, the upper West side was really, they called it the upper left side. Yeah. Um, because it was so, it was really like an artist community and it was very ethnically diverse and, um, economically diverse. And, um, it was really like the epitome of that New York melting pot. Um, and it was a lot of like, there were no chain stores. It was like all businesses that had been open for like 50 to a hundred years. It was like bakeries. My mother grew up in the Upper West Side and it was like the bakeries her grandmother took her to mm -hmm. were still open and all that. Um, and since then, I mean, some of it is time marches on, you know, um, but it has become a more sort of Lululemony. Um, yeah, the chains have moved in. Yeah. yeah. And, and, and it's become more expensive as it has everywhere in New York to live there. And so the people who can afford to live there are different, um, than who was there before. And, and that's why sometimes people talk about sort of Brooklyn, um, sort of Park Slope, Carroll Gardens and those areas as being more like the Upper West Side was then. Yeah. Um, but, uh, but there, but the truth is those are very, that's where I live. And those are very different places than the Upper West Side was. Um, so it took sort of realizing that all of that didn't exist anymore and that this was just a place I had sort of um, projected all of this, like m this, like special meaning onto the place. Um, and then just, just sort of realize, like, as you do at different points in your life, that everywhere you go, there you are. Um, it's still just you in this place, um, making a life for yourself. Right, right. Um, so that's part of what inspired, definitely inspired the book and, um, Marjorie's definitely struggling um, when trying to figure out how to be an adult. Well, and when she, at the beginning of the book, um, and I don't think this spoils anything. She she is working for in a for a publicist mm -hmm. um, who's very verbally abusive, and that's not at all uncommon for that industry or any of the sort of entertainment industries. I remember I used to work at ICM, which is mm -hmm. for those who don't know, is a, is a talent, one of the big three talent agencies. And although my bosses were never like this, it was very common for an agent to throw a phone across the room mm -hmm. at an assistant 
or make them do humiliating things or, you know, somebody was always crying. It was pretty volatile in a lot of ways in a very sort of Kevin Spacey swimming with sharks kind of ways. And, and I sort of saw some of that in, in the jobs or I'm sorry, in the um, publicist character in your book. And I was wondering if you ever had any experience working for somebody like that character. Yeah, I mean, I definitely had abusive bosses <laughs> in the entertainment in the entertainment industry, or came across that. I mean, I don't feel like I had the worst case scenario situations necessarily, but I certainly witnessed a lot of that, um, and that definitely inspired the idea of that character. And the other thing that inspired the idea of that character is that I started to think about this book during a time when um, I hope this is doesn't alienate anyone, but I started to write, think about this book. Um, during a time when like Oprah's the secret thing started mm-hmm. to be really big and this idea that like you make a dream board and if you if you say aloud what you want you can manifest it and if you haven't manifested it's because you're not believing that you can manifest it and say if you just you know all of these ideas and um I got I was I sort of thought it was funny and so in some ways it, she's a satire of that too because she's sort of wearing like hemp's of bracelets and like all of that kind of stuff, all of these like sort of meaningful pieces of jewelry, but she, and, she, and sort of operating the way that she's supposedly supposed to operate, but she's actually a terrible person. Yeah. Um, because I guess it, it felt to me at that time, like that, that piece, that piece that of, about being just like a good, kind person, respectful person was not part of the, the whole notion of, um, enlightenment. Yeah. I mean, you see, well, I mean, you see it all the time where you, you know, people give you like the namaste hands and kind of do a little bow when you compliment or whatever, but it's so antithetical to, to who, yeah. to who they are. They're so tightly wound that they could never possibly be open enough for any of that sort of spirituality or creativity to flow through them and then be reciprocated kind of thing. Um, it's, it's a really sort of interesting thing that I think is kind of in the general zeitgeist right now is that want, that desire to be, you know, open on a higher yeah. plane, but then <laughs> who you inherently are sometimes not fitting the mold right. as well. Right, right. It's like, what does it me- actually mean to be a good person? Um, you know, if... I mean, I think it just means don't be a dick. Yeah. <laughs> like, frankly. So and true. show up, show up. That's it. Show up and take responsibility for your actions. Yeah. I think that's, that's like, those are the big things. Like, um, and so that, so that character is just supposed to be sort of like, she's, she's definitely like a parody. I mean, she's pretty extreme. Um, but of, of that kind of person, which you see a lot in LA, I have to say, um, uh, who just sort of like pretending to be invested in those ideas, but actually isn't really about them. Um, there's a lot of, um, there's, there's a definite like undertone of anxiety um, within the book um, in the main character, Marjorie, well, arguably in many of the characters, but in Marjorie, but, and I don't know verbatim, but there are certain mantras that she seems to come back to that seem very sort of um, kind of Buddhism based and or therapy based where she's Mm -hmm. just trying to physically stay present you know my feet are on the ground I can you know breathe in the air that's here the sun shining on my face is that did you play with that intentionally with the sort of um, sort of ebb and flow of both the sort of life coach that her mom and the character the character of her mom sort of endorses and the sort of spirituality that a lot of us aim towards yeah I mean do you ever feel like after you create something you kind of want to both like laugh at yourself and hide because you like didn't even realize how much of like your own sort of stuff that was going on at that moment you've like put into it and then you're like oh god I just exposed myself to the world um I at that time um had gotten really into mindful meditation um and it was just like a period of time where I was really anxious and it helped me so much um, and so it became, even though her mother sort of recommends it and her mother is kind of like annoying to her and because it's her mother, she's like, stop, I don't want to listen to you. Um, this idea of trying to like live in the present really resonated with me because as I said, I was sort of tied to the past in many ways and was sort of, you know, stuck on the ways in which like my life was different when I was younger and, and where I wanted to get to, 
later and I was having so much trouble sort of staying in the present. And I felt like the character of Marjorie was having trouble being present. Um, and so it all just sort of, um, made sense. And I ended up, that ended up sort of coming into play. Um, but yeah, that's definitely an example of like me accidentally exposing my own, (laughs) my own sort of experience at the time. I wonder if a creative person exists on this planet who doesn't experience anxiety in one form or another. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's so funny. It's at one point, um, this, this uh, friend's child, this little kid who was like, probably like, I don't know how old he was. Maybe he was six at the time. We were walking down a beach together and he said to me, does everybody think about death all the time? <laughs> You're like, oh, I thought we were going to talk about sandcastles. Okay, right. pull up a chair. I was like, hey, I thought we were talking about dragons. Yeah. All right, let's do this. Um, yeah. And I was, I sort of took a minute and I thought about it and I, I said, you know, I don't think everybody thinks about death all the time, but I think that smart people think about those kinds of ideas, um, sort of thinking people do. And if you're somebody who's interested in looking at the world and seeing it, really seeing it and dissecting it in different ways, um, and really experiencing it, then, um, the, the notion of consequences and of, um, instability and, all of those things are just, it's just part of the experience, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, al- and allowing yourself to have those thoughts. Yeah. Without also, beating yourself down, you know, that you shouldn't be thinking about them. Um, it's probably, it's kind of like leaning into the experience so you can experience more. Exactly. And also with the, I'm, in talking to a little kid, I, I wanted to make sure that he didn't feel bad about himself or yeah. like think he was weird because of it, you know? Yeah. Um, but I think about that all the time because it's such a, it's, such, I mean, it's also really funny from a six-year-old on the beach, but um, it's also, it's a really good question. Um, so. One one that's a, that you gave a great answer. I mean, a, a one that many adults probably could not have answered. You wrote, um, I, one of my favorite things um, about the book that, and just in general, I love when writers do this, but but you did in this, in this book is you wrote a character who is a writer and so because, and through that, it seemed like you got to play with several different types of writing styles within the book that has its own writing style. Um, for instance, you wrote in the voice of a preteen, um, you wrote uh, in the voice of somebody who was working in the film industry who had to write this probably was my favorite part. I had to write some coverage and <laughs> and log lines, which for people that didn't work in the don't work in the film industry, you have to read when you work in the film industry. It's at lower levels. You have to often read these scripts um, and either write long coverage, which can be you know two pages long, or just short paragraphs, and then log lines, which are just a sentence encapsulating. And it, it seemed to me that you had, it kind of jumped off the page, like you had so much fun writing these, because you were writing about short films that were mostly not great. Yeah. And, <laughs> um, and you also wrote, you know, you got to write from, you know, the, you know, a roommate's perspective who was just writing letters, who's so different from, you know, the main character. Did you have fun? Did you have fun getting to incorporate so many different facets of your own writing self into one project? Yeah. Um, that's, uh, thank you for asking that question. I don't think anyone's asked me that question. Um, yeah, I love that. That's probably my favorite part of writing the book. Um, like especially writing as Belinda, who's the, um, 11 year old girl. Um, that was so fun for me. Um, Mm -hmm. just to sort of like slip into that character, um, for a second, um, and, and try to imagine like how she would talk. And I actually did talk to a bunch of teenage girls, um, beforehand, um, just to make sure I was like correct on the lingo and all that kind of stuff. Um, but yeah, I, I actually think in a weird way, um, and I never realized this. It took me a long time to realize this, but I actually think dialogue is probably what comes easy, most easy, most easy to me. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and 
I and for that reason, it's really enjoyable for me. Um, just both the writing in different people's voices and also the banter between um, like the various love interests and and her and also her friends um, and her. Um, that do you hear them? The do you fun. hear them in your head? Do you hear the characters going back and forth? Is that why you think? Why that happens to be the easier part for you? I think I must, yeah. yeah. I hear them in my head. I do think my husband sometimes calls me out if I'll be writing and suddenly I'm I'm not saying anything out loud, but I'm doing hand gestures as if I'm talking. Right, right. And he's like, what are you doing? <laughs> you know, who are you talking to? So you embody them in a bit. In I a guess, way. Yeah. yeah, I guess, I guess so. Yeah, I just, I do feel like I can hear their, their voices in my head. And, um, you know, my... I don't necessarily have the world's best memory in the sense that it's not like, like I have terrible geography. I could forget like, you know, huge chunks of history in, you know, 30 minutes after I learn it. Um, but I have a really good memory for conversations. Um, like I can almost recite them verbatim afterwards really? for some reason. Do you I think it's because there's emotion behind them? Do you think? Yeah. I yeah. mean, I guess so. It must be right. You remember what's, what, what in, you feel. What's in, yeah. And what's, yeah. And what's interesting to you, I guess. And I think, um, relationships of all kinds are like of paramount interest. Yeah. yeah. Fascinating. Yeah. Well, before we wrap up <laughs> as just sort of a, you know, we, we talked about how this is election day today. And by the time that this goes live in a couple of days, we will, hopefully know who our next president is, um, for better or worse. And I wanted to just bring up an article that, uh, sort of a fun article that you wrote for LA Weekly in 2004 that I found. Uh-huh. That it was the 14 hairstyles of the pundits. And, you know, th- have you ever thought about how much fodder there has been for, <laughs> for that exact same article over given how many candidates there were there were and, and especially who the ultimate candidates or candidate is um yeah that, that would and apply the extraordinary for, hair yeah. yes have you ever thought about um <laughs> just for fun and for the comic relief that i think we will all need regardless this week have you thought about revisiting that article i you know i think that's a brilliant idea <laughs> actually i it's funny because i was just saying to my sister the other day in terms of of trump um just, I don't understand how they let him wear his hair like that. Like, I mean, forget how he looks in the mirror and sees it and thinks that looks good. <laughs> I'm just so confusing to me how. Like, where his, are your friends? His yeah, like yeah. his his like consultants and whatever. How that's but whatever. But yes, oh my god, oh I my god. It seems hair. like his team is is very much like you do you, Donald. You do you, and yeah. I think that that's that's just. That's who he is. That's, he, that's him being him. Yeah. 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 Well, I'm going to post a link to this LA Weekly article just for fun on your show notes page. And then if oh, you, thank and you. then later, if you end up doing a little update on your own website or whatever, please send me the link and I'll also add it because um, sometimes you have to just laugh so you don't cry. Oh frankly. my God. <laughs> you said it, woman. I agree. Well, thank you so much. Um, it has been a true pleasure speaking with you. Thank you so much for having me. This was really fun. For more information on Nora's novels and articles, check out her website. To see book covers, learn how to schedule a Skype session for a book club meeting, and to enter to win a signed copy of her latest novel, Will You, Won't You, Want Me? Just go to her episode's show notes page at vickihowell.com craftish. To enter, just post a comment filling us in on something you do to help inspire your own creative flow. All entries must be received by 10 p.m. Central Time on Wednesday, November 16th. Thanks again to our sponsor, Makers Mercantile, who, as just a reminder, would like to give Craftish listeners free shipping site-wide. So if you need supplies for your holiday gifting, now is the time to shop. Just go to makersmercantile.com and use code VickiMakes at checkout. That's V-I-C-K-I-E-M-A-K-E-S. This offer is good through November 16th and valid for the U.S. only. Craftish is a Camp Bell Productions. It's produced in Austin, Texas by me and mixed and edited by Dave Campbell. Music is provided by Explosions in the Sky. If you liked this episode, please share it with a friend and or rate us on iTunes. Actually, we'd love it if you did both. Your word of mouth means that people can find this podcast, so we would truly appreciate it. And if there's someone that you'd like to hear as a guest on Craftish, please let us know. You can always tweet at Vicki Howell or email podcast at VickiHowell.com with your suggestions. 
Tune in again next week for another new episode of Craftish. The guest will be my buddy, craft designer, and DIY network contributor, Jennifer Perkins. Until then, and especially after what's been a really emotional week for those invested in the U.S. presidential election, take some time to create something positive to put out into the world. Know this, my friends, creativity is a powerful tool. Breathe in, craft out.